Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. In this episode, I interview Peter Hansens, who leads a large data engineering community and also has a consulting business for startups around cloud and serverless in Australia. Peter's been on the forward-leaning front for a number of new concepts. I've seen his name come up multiple times over the years. And he reached out about the challenges of building out a data mesh and, and implementing a data mesh for smaller companies like startups. Essentially, he was asking, how much can they get away with not doing of data mesh and how much benefit can they reap if they implement only some aspects of, of data mesh and which are the most important. So this has been a topic that's come up quite often and I've been hesitant to cover it because there are a lot of people out there who are looking to do the bare minimum and slap a, a data mesh logo on it. And that's fine. I won't necessarily agree that it's it should be called what they're doing is data mesh, but it's fine if they want to do that. But there are a lot of companies out there that are trying for technology only implementation, not focusing on the necessary mindset and culture shifts to truly achieve what data mesh is going for. And pretty much all of them have been mediocre results at best. And I think that will continue to happen. So I think it's an important question to ask um, as to how data mesh applies to smaller companies, but also to not lose sight of the fact that data mesh is trying to tackle the challenges that come with centralization of a lot of things within the your data and analytics approach at scale. If you're not at that huge scale, centralization can be fine. The reason I chose to have Peter on specifically was his message to me was one from an empathy angle. The startups that he's working with, the people in the data engineering community that he's talking to, they just can't build out all the complicated tech needed to meet the full vision of data mesh as laid out by Jmac. They need to be able to leverage low upfront cost solutions that get them some of the features, but they don't need everything a full featured enterprise does. So what could they take from the data mesh concept to drive towards being data-driven or data-informed 
but not have to go the whole nine yards. We covered a lot of topics and came to a, a pretty good agreement around the, the need to prevent startups from toiling at building a lot of this tech themselves, and that centralization is useful until it starts to create the bottlenecks. So it's not a rush to decentralize all the things. There are still gaps in the market around a data catalog that could serve the needs of startups and SMEs, but isn't that huge commitment cost-wise. And we drill in a, a bit into where to focus re-data and how to leverage some of the data mesh concepts for these smaller companies. If you are a startup or SME looking at trying to, to really become data-driven or data-informed, the first aspect is the culture change. You need to have your application development and data and analytics kind of production consumption model on, on equal footing. If you can then work towards, towards ways to prevent data breakage from application changes, you will be well on your way towards being able to treat data like a product and reap the benefits. Again, you don't have to go the whole nine yards of data mesh if you're not running into the the problems of a centralized data team and centralized architecture. I think overall, you'll really enjoy this one. Peter's just a wonderful and friendly person to talk to. And there's a lot of great information about how we can adapt the data mesh concept towards smaller companies. I don't think we have a, a blueprint that necessarily comes from, the, from this, but there's some really good food for thought in there. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Hi, everyone. I'm really excited for this interview. I've got Peter Hansens here from Cloud Shuttle. Um, he has asked the question that so many of you have asked. And so I decided to uh, jump in. Um, Peter is, is pretty well known in the data engineering communities. It's kind of a big deal. So uh, Peter, if you don't mind, could do, you give a little bit of an introduction to yourself and what you're doing with Cloud Shuttle, and then we can jump into kind of why we're, we're talking today. Yeah, so um, yeah, my name's Peter Hansons. I'm based in Sydney, Australia, and I've been running uh, Cloud Shuttle, um, a sort of community-focused cloud consultancy for the last two years. Um, really born out of the fact that I run quite a few meetups in in the serverless and data engineering space, and and wanted the ability to um, combine that um, with sort of some paid work as well to 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 sort of um, you know pay the bills at, at home and things like that. So um, it's been really good fun just learning from the community and and. Uh, and also doing a whole bunch of consulting, so which is always good fun. Doing lots of implementations, and um, especially in the sort of data engineering space, but specifically focusing on a, a lot of serverless solutions. 
Um, and, and I guess sort of diving really deeply into sort of like the startup and scale up space, I guess. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, you know, I've run across your name tens, hundreds of times. Like it's, it's really funny. Um, you know, bar Moses from Monte Carlo had done, uh, uh, a thing for one of your meetups on uh, data mesh specifically. And so, um, I just keep seeing your name pop up and, and it's always really high quality content. So I do recommend if people are, are interested to, to go ahead and, and check that out. But specifically around kind of that serverless and that scale up startups, uh, you had asked me specifically how data mesh could be applicable to the kind of not not the 10,000, 20,000 type person companies, but what about the the smaller companies? What about the SMEs, you know, whether it's a hundred person or it's, it's a thousand person, it's not necessarily, are they running into the exact same problems that that data mesh was designed around? If you look at um, a lot of Jamak's early videos, she talked about this as for the very large companies, but there are a lot of companies that want to get the same benefits out of data mesh. So how can we design something that has that same benefit, um, but you don't have the same scale needs? And so you can um, you, you don't necessarily have to go whole hog on all of the aspects of data mesh. Is, is that a good way of, of summing it up as well as wrapping in serverless? Is that a good way to sum up kind of where you were coming with the question? Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 interesting working with you know startups and scale ups, where you sort of look at um, I guess you know comparing that to to um, to say like an enterprise that's been around for 10, 20, 30 years, and you know they've got like multiple legacy data warehouses, maybe a SQL Server on prem, maybe. Yeah, a few SQL on-prem SQL servers, and they've gone through a few mergers and acquisitions, and um, all these different product teams dispersed across the company, and they're they're trying to sort of um, rationalize all of that data into a you know single version of truth and things like that, versus perhaps a startup that's kind of I guess born in the cloud. Um, you know, they've sort of modeled all their microservices um, following sort of domain driven design. And, um, you know, there's probably really easy ways to sort of stream that all in real time um, into their cloud data warehouses and things like that. So, very much definitely not all startups are sort of following best practices and domain driven design and the things like that. But um, oftentimes, like the, the level of challenges that startups face are very different to to what's in the enterprise. Yeah, and well, and the idea of doing domain driven design from day one it's it's one of those things where it's like that's even a a not best practice because if you don't have to distribute, don't distribute. I work for a distributed systems company, and we all say that as well. If you don't have to do distributed, don't because the centralized as far as you can take it until you start to feel the pains of it, it's a good model. So yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting topic. Um, I think one that you specifically hit on that I think could be a good jumping off point is around 
you know, digital native versus cloud native. And that, you know, uh, cloud native is this concept of, of everything Kubernetes and all this stuff. Is that overkill? Is that necessary? Can people, like, how could people, especially a startup or a scale up, not necessarily have to throw so many bodies at the problem that you need to be able to effectively manage Kubernetes? Is, is that, I mean, is that something you want to dig into first? Does that sound good? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I think part of what's happened here in Australia over the last um, couple of years is tech talent has always been a, a real big challenge for us. We've often had to sort of import our tech talent because universities just can't um, can't produce enough, you know, data engineers. Well, there just simply isn't a data engineering course at uni. Usually you'll come through as a computer science graduate or from other sort of areas um, and and you, you may not be sort of very well versed in all of the different technologies that are required to be cloud native. Um, and it was kind of part of the reason why I started the data engineering meetup in the first place about five years ago was there just wasn't really a lot of resources around um, to, to sort of um, learn about what my peers are doing, what best practices look like. I was new to the field and I was like, uh, is even what I'm doing even, <laughs> you know, the right thing to do? Um, so it was kind of almost, uh, uh, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to, to learn off my peers and stuff like that. And, um, and so um, that's, that's kind of like a lot of the sort of basis at which a lot of startups are operating at within especially the Australian technology market where, um, you know, perhaps their first data hire or their first data engineering hire, which could come through a bit, bit further along than their first data hire, just isn't a very technical person. They're having to train that person up. Um, so I'm kind of answering your question in a very long-winded way, but, um, you know, <laughs> Kubernetes is just, it's that sort of um, um, elite too far for a lot of startups, you know, when you're sort of having to roll your own Kubernetes cluster, maybe sort of deploy Airflow and a few other bits and pieces on it um, and, you know, <laughs> uh, trying to sort of, um, you know, get all of the various operators working and things like that. And, um, you know, people looking at looking to sort of get up and running a lot simpler than that. Yeah, you're speaking to the pain point, which which is is valuable, right? You're this is something that um, I'm hearing a lot as well within the the data mesh community, and kind of what you talked about with the data engineering community and why you started that. It was I started that not because I was implementing data mesh, but because I saw that. Um, People were having those same types of questions: "Is am I? I want to do this. Am I? Am I head of the class, or am I the the dunce and nobody's talking to me, or whatever?" So yeah, that that kind of difficulty in getting to what the kind of what people view as the gold standard is something in in data mesh that. I see a lot where people are trying to model what they're trying to do off of, you know, fang type companies. And I don't think that's necessarily the right model even because 
what we're trying to get to is a model that data is shared inherently and that data is viewed as a first-class citizen. So at a smaller company, if you don't have 30 domains, if you don't have 100 domains, a data warehousing is totally fine and that you don't have to do all the extra work of creating all these abstractions and creating all these challenge, you know, or tackling all these challenges around creating this super amazing self-serve platform versus, hey, we just want to make sure that the application teams are bought into the concept that um, your data matters (laughs) and that it's not application first and foremost and only. So how can we get there and how do we leverage things like serverless where you don't have to to say, oh, this has to be um, running at all times. We can do things in batch. We can do things where if there isn't a need for this data to be available in, you know, with a 10 minute SLA for freshness, then don't do that. Right. Like I'm giving people the permission to not have to, to, to go all the way there. And I think what Jamak has talked about is she created the first two pillars of data mesh, the domain data ownership and decentralized architecture. And then the second one is treating data like a product, but you don't need decentralized architecture if centralized architecture isn't creating a bottleneck. It creates a bottleneck once you're at a certain scale. And it creates a bottleneck once you have a certain number of domains and a certain number of problem sets. So like what you're talking about of how somebody could get here, you absolutely don't need to, to be going down this, this Kubernetes path until until you do, right? Like until your application side is blocked on the scalability and agility side by not being Kubernetes cloud native, all the, the fun buzzwords, why do it? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. So, you know, like in, in sort of, um, uh, I think what Datamesh is trying to achieve is trying to basically promote, you know, best practices for building out a data platform. And I guess that's sort of borrowed from sort of, you know, DevOps concepts of, you know, wanting to create technology platforms where you've got a standardized way of building different microservices or APIs and things like that. And so they're standardized patterns. And um, rather than getting the sort of platform team to do all the building for you, they've just got some templates and some standards that you need to adhere to. And it pushes the sort of... um, uh, emphasis and the work back onto the actual team that's kind of building that sort of service. And the same with sort of, I guess, the data platform, at least my understanding, I wouldn't call myself a data mesh expert, but. Um, there, yeah. I would say that they do that by making the resources capable for that team and give them additional resources, right? That additional headcount of putting that data engineer into that team so that there's somebody who knows how to do the data modeling. 
So it's exactly what you're saying is, is, but that it's, it's not just giving responsibilities to the domain. It's giving them resources to handle that as well. Yeah. And, and, and also sort of, I guess, templates and best practices and the, and the like, if you will, um, well, at least my understanding of it, um, you know, and so effectively you've got kind of like a contract with all of the various sort of microservices teams, please produce your data in a certain way so that it's easily consumable, discoverable, all of those, uh, great, um, sort of pillars of the data mesh that, um, you know, are just fantastic. Um, and, and sort of makes life a lot easier in that, in that sort of large enterprise setting. And I think that sort of really comes down to the fact that in those settings, there's a lot of, uh, variability in terms of the way that, uh, various applications and microservices and, and all of these sorts of things are built within, you know, you've got some services that were built like. 40 years ago and are using database technologies that you don't even know the name of anymore um, versus, you know, some that are using sort of like NoSQL databases like Cassandra and DynamoDB and things like that, you know, that are, I guess, a little bit more sort of well-known at least to sort of modern data engineers and, and the like. So you've got that con- contrasted to, say, you know, a modern um, startup that's probably just using Postgres database or, you know, a catalog of DynamoDB tables and and they're just wanting to um, onboard that data really quickly uh, versus the alternative in an enterprise where you've just got um, just this huge amount of teams to interface with. And unless you do have that contract, it just becomes unwieldy to actually get sort of um, a standard way of doing things, you know, in a startup, again, you've got, um, you know, product teams like application developers that are probably, you know, their, their time is so tightly sort of coveted by, you know, um, your, uh, their product managers. And then, you know, so a data engineer trying to get time with them is just, just not going to happen. And so, it just makes a lot more sense um, to, I guess, keep the centralized approach uh, in the short term um, whilst sort of slowly sort of, um, I guess, inching towards, you know, and, and sort of establishing some of those sort of data mesh concepts so that once you sort of get to that sort of growing pain stage and, and I think, you know, you look at tools like Airbyte and Fivetran a lot of these sort of data engineering as a service products or ETL as a service products are really sort of what's kind of um, helping uh, those startups, you know, onboard that data rapidly. And it's just, I think really what's missing in this space at the moment is like cost-effective data cataloging and, and data governance tooling for those startups. Um, but there is a lot of activity in that space. Yeah. Well, cause the cost of acquisition is so high and, and everything like that. So it's, it, but I, I get it that, um, it's kind of the, the modern data stack concept. I, I, I love and hate. So I completely empathize with why people are doing it. It's because, 
you want to be productive. You want to get stuff done. You know, uh, there, there's a different word that most people use for GSD in the middle for than stuff, but, um, but uh, that if you're upstream, if what you're working on, your data is constantly shifting out from underneath you where you don't know that that's going to happen, you know, and you don't have any control over that, your data people are building, they're using tooling so they can be productive. And it doesn't matter that things aren't that well integrated versus data mesh is very much about intentionality and and really thinking through and making this robust and thinking about this as a product but what you talked about with the the contracts that that can be either implicit or explicit contracts but what you need if you're a startup or a scale up and you want to take advantage of what data mesh is trying to accomplish you absolutely don't need to go for the fully decentralized architecture and in a lot of cases the decentralized architecture, it's more that your production of your data products isn't reliant on the same specifically underlying infrastructure as somebody else. So if you're thinking about just serverless, it inherently, unless it, you know the same function is used somehow to, to call and it splits off two different... Uh, um, uh, calls or whatever to produce data for two different data products, it's inherently already distributed. So like you're not going to run into that same challenge. And if you're not using just one giant S3 bucket, which would be a very bad practice, <laughs> you're having distributed from, from that standpoint too. So you, you don't have to worry about that as much. And, and I think you can have it all go into one conceptual um, type of, of model, or you can you can push people to 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 do that, and it's not nearly as much of a challenge of having somebody that is kind of your snowflake person, right? It's not that you have to have every single person in every domain that's also capable of, like you said, like running Kubernetes and you know doing a bunch of CICD for uh, your data, or you, you could throw it into to BigQuery and, you know, you're, you're just kind of dumping it in there and then creating some, some tables for people to consume. Just all of those things are totally acceptable because you're not having the same challenges, right? The, the, the issue with trying to have a a few or a more centralized model or kind of guardrails as to how people share their data is, is bad at a very large scale because you just start to lose more and more and more context, right? You're like, you have to fit this shape and everybody else is very, you know, you have the cookie cutter and everybody is, um, you've got 600 things that you're trying to apply the cookie cutter to, you're going to end up cutting off most of the edges on most of those to make it, you know, broadly applicable, which is the, the challenge of enterprise data warehouse. But one with tooling like a BigQuery or a Snowflake or a whatever, you don't 
you can have way more than one kind of warehouse type concept. You know, it's kind of like the lake house or whatever, where you've got like different or different S3 buckets. Like it's just, it's not the same concept that a lot of enterprises are having to deal with. And what you what you need to to take on board to really get the value out of data mesh is that the data is a product and that that is part of your culture and that you also look to give your people the time to become educated on how to infuse their decision, infuse data into their decision making. You don't have to build this most complicated platform. There, there was, I, I sent you over this, Peter, there was a great article by the CIO of, of L'Oreal, uh, Francois Wen, who had talked about just doing this stuff in serverless. Because especially at, at the scale, you don't want to build this stuff yourself. You don't have to build something that's going to auto-deploy all these complicated technologies. So exactly what you talked about as well, of the, um, we need to have more of these technologies, more of these capabilities in cost-effective manners. What? Sorry, I've been I've been talking at you. I I, I want to. You're you're way more knowledgeable on this than I am. But like, what what are the pain points that you're seeing around somebody trying to be this data-driven or whatever to that doesn't have an army of data engineers? I think yeah it's it's really boils down to what is serverless and 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 then sort of like looking at what are the sort of current patterns in data engineering at the moment some of the attributes of what serverless is is it's like it scales to zero and it sort of scales um automatically um and it's like a a pay per use sort of pricing model and and quite a low sort of pricing model you can think of like S3, if you don't put any objects into it, then it's going to basically cost you nothing. Um, and you can sort of, it, it just scales without you really having to think about it. You can just dump in a whole bunch of data, which is, you know, you should be sort of intentional about it, as you mentioned, but um, you could just dump in, you know, petabytes of data into S3 and it, it'll just handle it. You'll have to pay for it, of course, um, and the ongoing storage. Lambda is is the same. It's a pay-per-use DynamoDB event bridge, which is, I think, going to be increasingly more used by um, uh, data engineering teams. But um, I don't want to be a, a, a do a sales pitch for AWS services. That there's equally great uh, great services on 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 Azure and, and GCP and other clouds and stuff like that. All all sort of achieving the same things. I'd have to speak up for Datastax and Astra, but um, but I, I will say um, if you do have a completely blank uh, AWS account, it still costs you one cent because it actually costs that you you have an S3 bucket that all of your S3 buckets are blank and then it runs an API call. So it does cost one cent per month because I used to run AWS costs. So it's, it's, it's really funny, but, um, but no, exactly what you're talking about of, and and I think that's the build side too, right? That if you are at a scale where the where building out these technologies yourself to run the open source is economically smart, 
do it, but start to really think about not just, oh, our bill is, is pretty high. It's, okay, well, we have to invest the time to create this, run this, and it's not a one-time, one-off creation. It's the constant maintenance of this. You know, Looking at TCO for or total cost of ownership, if people aren't aware, but the TCO for something like um, even we, we, when I was at, at Tenable, um, I was running their, the AWS cost and looking at DynamoDB um, on demand versus DynamoDB just regular, each transaction, if you fully leveraged what, what you had as provisioned, um, each on demand transaction was seven, or it was like 6.93x in every region for every write and every read. But so, you know, 7x more expensive. We cut our bill 85% on our Dynamo DB spend by moving to all on demand. That is, is like when you think about your provisioning and you think about your spin up, spin down, you think about all of these other things. If you don't have to build the, the, the complicated tech, yes, it sounds fun to build. But you know what it's not fun to do? Run. <laughs> Absolutely. And and that was kind of, I guess, where I was getting to with a lot of the open source projects. They've all got like these wonderful Docker Compose files where you've got a, a, a series of services that they're stitching together. So you'll go ahead and you'll spin up an EC2 instance, um, you know, Git clone that repo and and do your Docker Compose and and maybe you need to do some sort of um, data loaders or something like that, and um, and and so you'll need to spin up on a separate instance, maybe an Airflow, um, you know, uh, cluster, and um, and 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 so you're sort of starting to run all of these infra- infrastructures either on EC2 instances, or maybe you've got a Kubernetes cluster, so you'll just fire up a Helm chart to get that up and running and stuff like that. And it, it kind of works okay. You've got, you know, um, a, a database on a, um, on a pod with a, you know, a volume, a persistent volume claim and things like that. And um, it's working well enough until um, it crashes and you need to start thinking about sort of, um, you know, snapshots and backups and all of these sorts of things. Uh, pretty soon you've kind of reinvented the cloud <laughs> within your Kubernetes environment. Now, if you're a big enough company, like, and and you can sacrifice, say, half a dozen data engineers to run all of that, and, you know, there's potential cost savings for you to run all of that infrastructure because, you know, you're operating at just such an incredible scale, whereas a lot of startups just, don't have that. And so, you know, with Airflow, Astronomer uh, becomes a really compelling um, argument or, um, uh, you know, the I'm hearing MWA. good things about Elemental and Prefect and things in the same thing where it's just, it's, if you don't have to deal with the management, why do it? Exactly. And, you know, like a lot of these things have a ticket price of like, you know, five or $600 a month, you know, which is, you know, um, as soon as you sort of have to put a data engineer um, for one day a month, 
managing that sort of a thing, it just becomes uh, cost ineffective to, to to run it yourself, and and that's kind of really where this serverless mindset has gone. And I think Snowflake has really had a very positive impact by being like a serverless data warehouse. Um, you know, I know a lot of other data warehouses are making really big waves in this space and really embracing the serverless mindset um, and and sort of just allowing sort of data engineering teams and data teams more generally to just focus on on creating business value and creating those data products. And I think that's that's really what's at the core of what we're trying to achieve, what Data Mesh is really trying to achieve. Um, the, the platform, the data platform for Data Mesh, it's about enabling teams to, you know, it's a, about enabling the domains to share their data. And then it's about enabling consumers to easily find trust, understand, and consume, use wh- whatever words you want to throw out there as to actually leveraging the data and that they're comfortable leveraging the data. So that's where I think what a scale up or a startup, again, you don't have to necessarily um, create this, this same concept of every domain has to be able to share all of their data in as high context of a way as possible. And then we, we create these standards and this uh, applicability to take what they're sharing and then combine it across domains because you don't have that many domains. You can actually have the conversation between these two domains and you do want the, the domains bought in that they have to share data in a high quality way, in a trustable way where it is a product, right? Where this is a first class concern and that when we're doing the um, application schema evolvement, that we're not breaking what what our data downstream is. And there needs to be better tooling around this. Um, There needs to, I I talked with uh, a couple of different people in the last few weeks about how do you do these data contracts? Like, how do you make it so you can actually uh, change, you can change your application without breaking your data downstream? Because if you block the ability to change your application, that, you know, kind of cripples your velocity as, as a, as a company. But if you're constantly breaking your data, you're, you're, you're kind of crippling your ability to, to really grok what's going on and be agile and understand what, what's, what's happening. So where is that interplay? We don't have the tooling yet. And so like startup scale-ups trying to do data mesh, especially if they're trying to fully embrace the, the, not just the target outcome, but trying to embrace all of the um, capabilities of it, you're just SOL because you're going to have to develop these tools entirely yourself or these processes because they're not public yet. I'm, I'm literally trying to work with um, a, a company 
to get them interested in having someone write this book. And then I'll find the person to write the book uh, because the, these processes need to be out there. But if we can create it at a tooling level, at least to do the schema contracts, you, you can't, I, I'm frightened by people trying to do um, the semantic drift, like trying to detect semantic drift within, you know, not just has, is this data in the same schema, but has the meaning of the data changed? Um, yes, you can do some like statistic stuff, but outside of that, like I, I feel for startups and scale-ups trying to do this because they don't have enough of a problem set where they want to fully take on the cost of creating tools to do this. Uh, it's, it's, it's the burden is huge, isn't it? And I think um, in the serverless space, I think uh, you know um, there, there are a few open source projects around sort of eventing and and sort of detecting schema change and evolution and and the like. Um, that that it, it's quite exciting and fascinating in that space. I think you know what DBT has done. Um, for, for sort of tests and schema contracts and things like that within the data warehouse is has been amazing and it's been a massive revolution. But I think, you, you know, you're absolutely right. It's kind of just a little bit too late. And I think sort of Great Expectations, another fantastic open source project that does um, data quality tests and checks, you know, within your data pipelines and stuff like that is kind of, uh, I guess moving those tests, um, you know, from the, the data warehouse, the sort of I guess end destination, closer to the source of the the data, which is fantastic to see, and and it's like incredibly powerful what it does, and a lot of data engineering teams um, are having a lot of fun with it, but it doesn't really address the the root cause of the issues, which is application development teams that are, I guess, you know, making schema changes because, hey, there's a business to run, we need to sell more widgets or whatever, um, and and changing that field name to um, something different, you know, is all about how we achieve selling more widgets. Um, don't worry too much about the data team and that business dashboard that the execs are eating or anything like that or that machine learning model that's, uh, depending off it, and and I think that's really the challenge uh, that that I think you're trying to articulate is how do we sort of you know get that tooling between application developers and and the data warehouse and end consumers and machine learning and all the rest where this sort of like data observability and 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 sort of tests monte carlo data obviously comes to mind as a startup that's doing some amazing stuff in this space um but yeah so it doesn't it seem like a very solved space does it so much of it is is once it lands and and it's like um so i had an interview uh that i did a couple of weeks back with uh, olivier volverick uh from octo and he was talking about he had created this, uh, and there's a, a great blog post on it too, where he had talked about, he created this POC that if somebody broke their their schema contract, it wouldn't publish it to the data mesh. So they couldn't publish 
broken data product. But like, I want to put that filter further and further and further left. I want that when the person checks out that schema, that there is something where there is a test framework where they can test what is this going to break downstream? Because there's there's a problem with empathy, right? And this is the, the culture change that I was talking about of where do scale-ups, where do startups start? You start with the culture of we want to care about our data. So we want to care about when our application changes are going to break the downstream. If, if that person doesn't care, then at the end of the day, you're always going to have struggles because you're trying to solve a people problem with tools. And you can kind of get there, but it's just never going to be <laughs> what you want it to be. But, you know, I, what I want is if, if you can get to a place where they can care, they don't know what they're going to break. Um, I had another interview with, with Jesse Paquette, and he talked about the testing frameworks around data are just garbage, right? So you're trying to test what is this going to do downstream? And if there was a, uh, Abby, who was another person I had interviewed around this, this topic, um, as you can guess, like, as soon as I started to understand this topic, I just started being like, Hey, I, I need to talk to people. Um, but that they actually have somebody that they at, at Flexport, they have enough of a budget to embed somebody into these teams as an analytics engineer to work with the application team to say, oh, no, you can't do this change in this way. It's going to break everything downstream. So let's continue to support the legacy and start with the new thing. And then we'll start to, to figure out, you know, like if you think about like name split versus combined or, or things like that, okay, let's, let's change this in this way so it doesn't break the downstream data consumption. And they're able to figure out who is a downstream consumer. But when you think about the way most companies are doing, like if you think about how people do a, a DBT thing, Monzo did a good post about this. They have 4,500 data artifacts, like tables. And if you think about this, you know, table one and then okay, I can. I, I know that if I do this, it'll break table one. So I'm not going to do this to break table one. But if I do this change, I don't know if it'll break any of the tables that are dependent off of that, right? Of table two that's dependent off of table one. And then table three and four, which are dependent off of table two. And then, you know, table three is also dependent off of table A. And so like all of these changes, as you think about that, which data mesh, it encapsulates that kind of, data breakage chaos into um, a more confined space. Like you don't have as much surface area because you don't have 4,500 tables. You might have a thousand data products. You might have 500 data products, but you have much fewer of that surface area where things could break and that there is a specific owner who like has to care about if it's going to break. But we have to figure out how do we make it so that those that it's not a ton of toil work for the application developer to know if their change is going to break things. And so we, we feel the pain, but we have to understand that that's not how they're, they're incented. That's not how they're wired. So we have to change 
the incentivization so that they do care and that they can care that they can actually figure out what am I going to do? What is this going to hurt? Yeah. And, and sort of putting my product hat on for a second, it's almost like you need something, you know, within GitHub, you know, where it's kind of like one of your, one of your tests, um, you know, linked up to say a data catalog and it's like, okay, yeah, like here's your change. You've made a schema change. Uh, you've changed this co- column name or something like that, or the data type. And here's all the dashboards and the machine learning models that you've broken and you need to get, and, and it automatically adds, you know, uh, the product owners for all of those dashboards and machine learning models as reviewers of the PR before it can get through. Um, I'm sure <laughs> that uh, that poor old uh, application developer would be swelling, sweating bullets at that point, but, um, but at least, you know, it gives that end-to-end visibility within the organization. Um, and, and, you know, I can, and I think that it really just sort of touches on, you know, the importance of lineage and data catalogs and just making them more, more available, you know, throughout sort of organizations. And, um, I think, you know, sort of like the ticket price of the, some of those things are really sort of challenging, uh, for startups to pay for. And I, I hope there's like a, a lot of downward pressure on the price of those things so that, um, because unfortunately, and this is, this is no slight on DBT. I think their data catalog is amazing for data teams, but beyond a data team, um, it just kind of, I think you need a broader scope of data catalog that sort of encompasses all of your data sources. Um, so that, you know, like, and, and so that you can attribute data owners and, and also like your consumers. So you, machine learning models and your dashboards and things like that so that you can attribute sort of data product owners um, and have that full end-to-end traceability. Um, but oftentimes those catalogs that do all of that and that have got like the, the column level um, lineage um, can be extremely expensive and, um, and sort of out of reach of most startups. Yeah, it's it's a chicken and egg issue, and um, it's I, I fully agree with you there. I think there's a company that's trying to tackle that same kind of concept on the platform side. I think it's Jujitsu or something like that, where it's like a twenty dollar a month type of thing. So, like, right. if you can have that same concept around the da- the data catalog, yeah, I fully agree. And that that lineage that you're talking about, so much of it is from the downstream versus I can see as the producer who is consuming it. I don't have that capability in most of these. I can see who's my first order consumer, but then it doesn't really track where that data goes from there. And that's part of, you know, Data Mesh, uh, Jmac really wants there to be um, within the federated computational governance that that lineage is tracked within the code. And so you might have a data product reference ID. And so it can track where this data came from. And so let's say you've just got kind of a data artifact that's not an actual data product, but somebody tries to publish it to the mesh. It can instantly know what is my lineage and then what SLAs can I have? Because, oh, I'm trying to say that I can refresh this data 
every 30 minutes. Well, my upstream source is refreshed once a day. No, you can't. Like, <laughs> it's not going to be that fresh. I'm sorry. Yeah. But like, that's so, so, so far beyond what a startup or a scale up really needs around what they're trying to do in most cases. You would want that to be kind of a one-off versus, you know, we, we talked a little bit before we jumped on the recording about your return on investment. What is your investment versus what is your return? If you're trying to build out the, the data platform that Jamac and, and the ThoughtWorks folks have talked about and you're a startup, you're probably crazy because the the investment is going to be so massive to be able to get there and your return is just not going to be there for a number of years versus where can we go with this around our culture? Where can we go with this around some tooling and that, that serverless side so that we're not spending an arm and a leg up front to do this? It's, it's, I don't have the answers, but I, I think these questions are good. And like, how far do people have to go? It's very, very situational dependent. But we can get to the data as a product and the the um, the domains owning the data because they're the ones that know it best, and they can they can think about how they'd want to share that data, but that you don't have to really fully build out this insanely complicated platform. But how, where where does that break? Uh, if 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 it's taken you two months to get the data, is that too bad? Is it if it's a month to get you know a new data when you have request? Is that too much? You know, Jamak has talked about six, nine, twelve months between somebody asking a question and actually being able to get their hands on the data. Like that's that's way 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 too much. Like slowness, you don't have any agility there. You know, by the time you've answered the question, the question no longer is relevant. But what what is the 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 challenge? Especially, what do you see as the challenge, or what what do startups really want to get out of this when they're talking to you about this or scale ups and things like that? Yeah, I, th I think it is um, sort of the lineage and traceability is is that real key discussion point, and I think um, it's it's not that. Um, startups need to embrace serverless. It's that I think serverless is coming to data engineering, and and serverless is is going to start to become a bit more pervasive in and around the sort of startup data engineering tooling. Because I think um, building out these sort of these toolings and these platforms and things like that is well and truly beyond the, the sort of um, capability or, or the sort of playbook of a, of a startup and it, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, I think startups can't wait uh, to implement data mesh or do things the data mesh way in, in order to onboard data. You know, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's a question of business survival, whether you sort of onboard a data set and can get those metrics and, and make product decisions based on it. And so, you know, if you've got any friction between um, onboarding data and actually sort of starting to analyze it, then um, I think, you know, that's just unpalatable in a, in a startup. Um, so 
and but I think what we will see is um, you know tools like Airbyte and 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 Fivetran and and other tools that are data engineering as a service tools are here to stay in the startup ecosystem. I can't see them disappearing. Um, I think they'll slowly evolve, but I think what will happen is we will see um, better tooling around how to um, make sense of the lineage in an offline fashion a bit in the same way that, you know, tools like um, Data Hub and Amundsen are do- doing at the moment. They're, um, they're doing sort of query log introspection to build up that uh, that lineage. There's a lot of really great sort of um, Python libraries out there that sort of can can sort of provide you um, with you know sort of like down to the column level lineage and even you know like because fundamentally sort of like visualization tools they've all got it like a SQL database under the hood anyway so you can use the same mechanisms to analyze their query logs to pull out lineage there and then same within the data warehouse and then you know most databases um you know have ways of exposing uh you know their sort of um table and column metadata as well and so you can sort of start slowly sort of stitching together the lineage offline even if you're using a tool like say fivetran or airbyte and then and then you know you can sort of um, start implementing these things after the fact, you know, like in terms of detecting um, schema changes and, and the like. And I think what, but we're not going to see sort of startups building out this sort of stuff, you know, yeah. there's, there's movements like open lineage and the like um, that are sort of bringing a lot of this stuff to startups and, 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 and bringing down the costs you know, tremendously. So I think we're going to see some really, really awesome innovation in the space. Are you seeing that that lineage drive? So there, there are a couple of different things around that. So a lot of why people look to lineage is, can I trust this? What yeah. What is this? Where did it come from? But some of what you were talking about seemed to be, who is using this? Why are they using this? And that that downstream tracking and going, should I invest more in what people are looking into this? Was this fruitful? Was this useful? And somebody pointed me to something around um, BigQuery starting to kind of uh, allow this from from Google and GCP that that it it allows that tracking. I think Snowflake might a little bit, but what what you're talking about, I think it's that dual side. I, I talk about usability of data in in data mesh, which means the ability to understand it, to trust it, to track its lineage, to um, to actually access it, to use it, right? Do I have like access controls and things like that? And so there's that that from the consumer standpoint, but also what you talked about of if if I'm paid to care, right? If I'm the domain and I do want to care about who is using what data and why and how, not just for governance to, to hit somebody with, you know, with the, the stick if they stepped over bounds, but like, where are we seeing that people are trying to dig around and why are they digging around that? And then you have the person to person conversation, 
but it's that tooling can generate, it can be the genesis for great interactions to say, what are you digging for? Can we get you the information? Did you find something interesting? Let's talk about it. Should we make sure that you can continue to have that insight? Or if you didn't get the insight, what were you looking for? And maybe we can work together to create the information flow to create that insight. So I think I think you're on to something that that hasn't been talked about much in in data mesh and, and even in and in the broader data space. Is is that what you were kind of poking at? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's super important, like in terms of usage statistics for, for tables and 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 just on a variety of levels, because first and foremost, maintaining a data set within a data warehouse actually has a cost. It's not like a you know <laughs> You've got, you know, like Monzo Bank, uh, you've got four and a half thousand uh, tables and they just magically just appear for free. Like um, a lot of companies are trying to rationalize the effort that they're, they're sort of using to, to, you know, maintain these data warehouses. Would it, It's not always a, a positive thing to hear that no one's using 50% of your tables in, in your data warehouse, but it could be a useful metric for you to know because then you could say, well, hey, let's let's perhaps think about retiring, you know, half of the 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 data sets that we've got in our data warehouse because really no one's no one's using them, not even sort of automated processes or something like that. So that can be quite useful. Another very good application of usage statistics is oftentimes um, you know, trust is a social thing and whether, you know, you might have sort of 10 or 15 product tables within your company, but there's one product table that everyone queries. And so, you know, when you're trying to answer this question of, well, which product table can I trust the most? Um, you know, obviously lineage and all of these freshness tests and, and dollar quality tests can, can have a big application there, but also just, fact that everyone else is using it can give you um, a good indication of that table's trustworthy score in a roundabout way. Um, I know it's it's not a bulletproof method, but, um, you know, and, and it's also just great to know, yeah, like answering some of the questions that you've just posed around sort of, you know, are people getting what they need out of, and you know, are there co- common how do we sort of focus our data team's effort on the areas that matter the most, e.g., you know, these tables that are getting uh, used the most from these particular domains? Exactly. And, and a concept that I've started to talk about is, is data product marketing, where you've got a new thing of, of data within, it might not be like this table, it might be a secondary table, but it's related to the first table you can go and say, hey, we see that you've been doing this. We think that there's some additional information that's useful over here. Like, give us some feedback or we're developing it or hey, we have developed it and we think that it's useful. It's like push it, putting it in front of those people to see if it is useful. And, you know, th- that general marketing concept is, is pretty, um, it's emerging, but it's interesting. Um, so, I mean... We're, we're, we're coming up on an hour here. This has been an awesome talk, but um, do you think we answered the question of, of 
where a, uh, a scale up or a startup could go? Do you have a good summation? I, I don't off the top of my head have a good summation of what I would say to that. So I, I'm, I'm putting it on you, but if you don't have one as well, it's, uh, I guess. I think you need to have a serverless mindset and, and reach for serverless first. And having a serverless mindset just means that, you know, you don't want to be, uh, um, doing backup scaling, um, you know, worrying about um, all of these sort of operational issues. Although, you know, we're never going to get rid of operational concerns, but um, I think that's really the key: is to focus on generating business value and and sort of and putting sort of what's interesting from a technology perspective to the side and, and, and sort of making sure that you're sort of picking, picking, you know, tools that are just going to allow you to fly faster. So that means, you know, pick a serverless starter warehouse or a, a serverless starter lake and, and, and sort of compute model there, choose serverless, um, you know, um, event buses, uh, look at. Is there a reason you're a serverless hero? Is there? Is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. But um, honestly, um, you know, I've seen companies drink the Kool Aid and 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 really achieve great things. You know, you see, a cloud guru got built within you know a matter of weeks uh, by its fa- founder Sam Cronenberg, um, and and just recently had a two billion dollar exit, um, being acquired by Pluralsight and. Their entire backend was built serverlessly, and um, you know you, you pretty much had a startup that was built by one person doing some really sort of significant um, compute in terms of like um, video transcoding and and, and the and the like, and yeah. all completely serverlessly, and and so um, you know it's it's you know the the future's already here, the future's now. You know, this stuff is already happening. So definitely highly encourage you to um, to to give it a go. You know, if, if, you, if you've if you got um, a Kubernetes cluster, um, you know, whirring along, um, you know, maybe the next thing that you build, try something serverless and, and see how you like it. Yeah, the, the cost model on it can be pretty ridiculously Awesome, but I, I would add the the um, data culture side as well. If you're if you're looking to be if you're looking to put data first and really be data driven, you have to start thinking about <laughs> what your your actions have consequences. So your applications have consequences for your data, and how do you balance the evolution of your application with not breaking your data. I think we have to bring that question up and I don't think there is an answer for everybody, but I think even having that awareness and just making sure everybody is on the same table or the same page that there are going to be schema changes and that we need to figure out how to communicate up and downstream as to when those are coming, what they might break, how do we make it that the app, it's not all in the application dev or the app dev to um, uh, to 
communicate and to understand exactly what their changes are going to cause, but that we also understand that those application changes are necessary. And sometimes you got to break the data and we just have to figure out how we, we deal with that ahead of time rather than it's a fire drill. Yeah, exactly. So lots of more tooling to be invented in this space, but um, I, I'm very positive that um, a fair chunk of it's going to be serverless and it's going to really uh, dramatically improve the lives of, um, you know, a lot of those data engineers out there sort of, um, you know, that are working really hard to keep the lights on for their, you know, data estates. I, I call Data Mesh a secret love letter to data engineers because there's, if you watch Jamak's early presentations on it, she's just always like, I feel so much for these data engineers because they're just so swamped under, underwater on all this stuff. So, um, and I'm, I'm getting the uh, pole bell from my, my dog. She's, she's now up and, and sniffing around. So, um, what, uh, how, how can people find you, you know, if they want to get in touch or, um, you know, you've got these awesome meetups, we'll drop links in the show notes, but like, how, how can people find you and what do you want them to get in touch with you about if they've got questions or they want to follow up or. Yeah. So, um, I'm on Twitter at Pete Hansen's, um, uh, or you can just go to datarange.com.au or, or just reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, Peter Hansen's there. Um, I run the Sydney Data Engineering Meetup, also Data Engineering Meetups in Melbourne, Brisbane, and Perth now, uh, and and also the Sydney Serverless Meetup. So um, you can join our Data Engineering Meetup Slack channel if you like. Sort of love hearing about folks uh, talking about data engineering and and data mesh. I'm also on the data mesh um, learning slack group there so feel free to reach out to me there if you're already on there i'm sure you would be if you're listening to this um awesome podcast that scott's putting together um and yeah just uh you know if you've got questions around um how do i do data engineering in a serverless way in a sustainable way then you know i'm really interested to have a chat with you i don't have all the answers myself um it's a bit like this show it's a discussion it's a, a, a coming together of ideas so um you know really really looking forward to chatting to you some more so yeah it's le- it's learning out loud so again <laughs> thanks so much sorry gabby it's just uh, being gabby uh thanks so much for uh, everybody for listening and thanks again peter i'd like to thank my guest today peter hansens who runs a consulting company helping startups with cloud and serverless development as well as running a data engineering community. If you'd like to get in touch with Peter again, you can check the show notes. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real time AI needs. But 
I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.